Hey, everybody. This is Heather Vickery. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Brave Files podcast. You are going to be so glad that you came in for this particular conversation because I talk with Barbara Roberts today, and she is the first female cardiologist ever. In this episode, we talk about how incredible she is and how she paved the way for other women like her in the medical field. We also talk about how all people deserve good quality medical care, even criminals. And Barbara faced this reality head on when she was approached to give medical care to a famed New England crime boss. So tune in so you can find out who that is and learn all the details about that. Uh, she got very involved in the the crime scene, not the crime scene, in the mob scene by working with this crime boss. And her stories are fascinating and funny. And she even wrote a book called The Doctor Broad. You're going to have to learn all about that as you listen. Barbara and I talk about the fact that where we come from doesn't have to inform us for our lives. The morals that our parents taught us are allowed to change as we experience our own lives. It's a great episode. You're going to enjoy it. Barbara is funny and engaging and just the things that she's done are incredible. But before we start the episode, I wanted to let you know about a couple big things that are happening right now. Uh, One of them is that on Sunday, April 12th, the Brave Files celebrates its 12th birthday. This is an incredible milestone and I give my heartfelt thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in week after week. We couldn't do it without you. We wouldn't have a show if you didn't listen. And to the incredible people at Team Brave, Andrew and Mary and Megan and Molly and Kim. Um, Wow. And even Leisha, we have so many wonderful people supporting the Brave Files right now, and I couldn't do it without all of them. So much love to all of you. And in order to celebrate the way that we love to here at the Brave Files, we're having a live birthday party on Sunday, April 12th from two to four. It's going to be in the Brave on Purpose group on Facebook. Now, I realize that Sunday is Easter for those of you who celebrate, but maybe you can pop on for just a few minutes, especially since nobody's traveling to be with family right now, and celebrate with us. We're going to give away some prizes, we're going to have some special guests, and we're going to do some updates on past guests. All you have to do is join us in the Brave on Purpose Facebook group. If you're not already a member, it's totally free. Just search up Brave on Purpose in Facebook and join us. We'd love to have you there. And then also, we have decided that... um, You know, we do a a gratitude episode every year on Thanksgiving, and it's one of the most beloved episodes we do all year. People absolutely love it and get excited to participate and love to listen to it. And with everything we have going on in the world right now, um, I thought we could use a little extra dose of gratitude. When things are difficult and hard and heavy and scary, that's when we need to tap into gratitude the most. So we are putting together a special gratitude episode for those, for all of us who are now surviving shelter in place and the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, We need your help though. We can't produce this episode unless you call in and share with us what you are grateful for right now during this pandemic while we are stuck at home in quarantine and sheltering in place um, and what wonderful gifts you're finding are surrounding you at all times. Give us a call at 312-646-0205. You have to call by Sunday, April 12th. You have to call right now in order to get your clip included in the episode. So again, 312-925-2468. And we cannot wait to share this wonderful episode with all of you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to all of that. And now we are going to move on with this awesome episode. 
My three words are courage, honesty, and perseverance. This is Heather Vickery, and you're listening to The Brave Files, stories from people living courageously. When we choose bravely in big and small ways, it powerfully elevates our lives. I hope these stories connect with you and encourage you to embrace bravery in every possible way, day after day. Together, we can build a movement of courageous living that enriches both our lives and our communities. And if you enjoy the show, I ask you to please share it with others. Maybe think of someone who you want to choose bravely right alongside you. Thanks for tuning in. Now here's the show. Hey, everybody. It's Heather Vickery. Welcome to this week's episode of the Brave Files podcast. I'm very, very glad you decided to join us today. I have a question for you. Have any of you listening ever been in a position where you had to decide between what you believed was right or just and doing your job? Well, today's guest, Barbara Roberts, has had that experience, and she's here to tell us about saving the life of a mob leader. She's now known as the person who brought down the New England Mafia, and she's here to talk about it. I can't wait. I have so many questions, Barbara. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. I think you are an incredibly fascinating lady, and I'm looking forward. I want to hear a little bit of background. You, um, obviously, they had this major life experience, and a lot of things have happened to you since then, but you've sort of led a life of several firsts. Can you give us a little bit of a a background um, about who you are and how you found yourself in this position to, to save this person's life? Sure. Well, you know, if you were asked to invent a character who would be the least likely person in the world to become involved in any way with the mafia, you might come up with someone like me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was raised as the oldest of 10 children in a devout Catholic family. Wow. My parents were uh, members of what was called the Catholic Worker Movement. They were followers of the radical Catholic pacifist Dorothy Day. And they and their friends wanted to raise their children away from the temptations of the quote-unquote big city, which in this case was New York. Right. So they pooled their meager resources and they bought 52 acres of land in what was then called the country and is now called the suburbs, about 20 (laughs) miles north of New York City. And they founded a community called Marycrest, after the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right. And... We Mary Crest kids, as we still refer to ourselves, even though we're even, you know, middle-aged and elderly, we Mary Crest kids were raised to be saints, preferably martyrs, because, because if you died for your faith, you went immediately to heaven, you bypassed purgatory, you bypassed hell, and you got to spend all eternity in heaven. Wow. And we, you know, we had a very unusual upbringing. We celebrated not just our birthdays, but our saints' feast days. We had, uh, you know, we went to Catholic schools. We attended mass at least once a week. We were taken to confession every other week. We were really raised as devout Catholics. But I could see, because I was my mother's mainstay and helper, that this constant childbearing, because she had 10 children in 10 years. That's a lot. I had four children in eight years, and that was a lot. So (laughs) I could see what a toll it took on my mother. And as I grew into adulthood, I 
decided uh, at a very young age, only 16, that I was going to become a doctor. And why wow. did I make that decision at a time when it was almost unheard of for girls to want to yeah, become doctors? Yeah, what year was this? Do you mind sharing? I graduated high school in 1961. Okay. And I went to Barnard College. That was a story in itself. But anyway, <laughs> I became a doctor because my father worshipped priests and doctors. And I knew I didn't have a prayer of becoming a priest. Right. So I decided to become a doctor. And it was a time when there were quotas on the number of women in medical schools. No woman, no class could have more than 10% women. Wow. And during medical school, I saw things that really radicalized me and led me to leave the Catholic Church, particularly on my OBGYN rotation uh, as a medical student, where I saw women brought into the emergency room with perforated wombs, sept in septic shock, even with their bowels hanging out of their vaginas because they had been desperate enough to put themselves in the hand, hands of back alley abortionists. Yeah. And I came to believe that the church's injunction against birth control and against abortion were wrong and led to untold suffering and even deaths. And I became a feminist. By now, it's the early 70s, and the second wave <laughs> of the feminist movement was in full swing. By that time, also, I had married my college sweetheart, and we had two children. But he wanted me to be a traditional wife, other than the fact that oh, he was glad boy. that I was a doctor. And he refused <laughs> to help with the children, help with the housework, help with the cooking. And this led to a rather acrimonious uh, breakup of our marriage. I would but say I was so. very politically active, both in the uh, women's movement and the anti-war movement. I actually spoke at the last mass anti-Vietnam War demonstration on the grounds of the Washington Monument the day of Nixon's inauguration in 1973. Oh, wow. And I believed passionately in these causes. After leaving the National Institutes of Health, where I was involved in uh, heart research for a couple of years, I moved to Boston and did my cardiology fellowship there. Now, I was a single mother of two little children by that time, and one of the people I hired to be a babysitter was a man who, as he said, was <laughs> upgraded from babysitter to lover. We began a romantic relationship, and when I finished my fellowship, he moved with me to my first job on the full-time faculty at Penn State's medical school, and while we were there, I had my third and last child, our daughter, our okay. youngest daughter. But much like my father, and I hadn't mentioned this, although it's mentioned in the book, he descended into more and more severe alcohol abuse and alcoholism mm. and drug abuse. And that relationship foundered and died shortly after I moved to Rhode Island as the first female adult cardiologist in the state in 1977. Uh I mean, let's just pause for one second and acknowledge sure. that the first female cardiologist in the state. How many do you know female cardiologists were there in the country at the time? Do you know? I don't know how many were in the country, but it was not very many. I can I can think of, you know, a half a dozen names offhand. There were female pediatric cardiologists. That was not terribly uncommon. But it was very uncommon for a woman to be an adult cardiologist. Right. I was the first woman in my cardiology fellowship. It's and incredible. as I said, the first woman cardiologist in Rhode Island and the only one for many years. And I can see from a patriarchal standpoint why those big, strong men didn't want this woman 
right. performing open heart surgery on them, right? Well, you know, I'm not a cardiac surgeon. That's an entirely different ah, specialty. Okay, I was a okay. cardiologist. I did the heart catheterizations, which told the surgeon what needed to be done. Gotcha. Okay. So, okay. um, but you know, it, it was still very unusual in those days to go to a female physician of any stripe. Sure. But yeah. I was, I was uh, very lucky in that there were a few physicians who began referring me patients sort of right out of the box. And it was through one of these physicians who, who was actually a cardiac surgeon who used to refer me patients who became friendly. And he started referring me patients among whom was the father of his best friend. Now his best friend was a man by the name of Jack Cicilline. And Jack Cicilline was the preeminent criminal defense attorney in Rhode Island. Okay. And I took care of Jack's father when he had a massive heart attack. And in the six weeks that he clung to life after that heart attack, because by the time he got up to my hospital, the damage had been done and there wasn't much we could do. But during those six weeks, I became very good friends with Jack and his wife and his five children and his brothers and his sister and many of his friends, among whom was the son of the alleged head of the New England Mafia, Raymond Jr. Patriarca. Raymond Sr., Raymond Patriarca Sr., had been the head of the New England Mafia since the 1950s. And Jr. told me, after we had gotten to know one another, that he was very unhappy with his father's care, and he asked me if I would see his father as a patient. And I had no hesitation about saying yes, as far as I knew he was living quietly at home with his second wife, his first wife having died of cancer. So he you had, had no idea that he was the leader of oh the no. New England Mafia? No, I did know. I mean, you Oh, you did know. You, okay. couldn't, you couldn't grow up in, in the Northeast United States and not know who he was because oh, he wow. was always on television, in the newspapers, being called to testify in front of you know, congressional committees where he denied being a mafia, you know, mafioso. So I knew who he was, but by now he's in his 70s. I knew that he had been diabetic since the 1940s. I knew he had had a heart attack in the 1960s. And knowing that these were both progressive conditions, I, even before I laid eyes on him, figured that he must be quite ill. And so I had no hesitation about agreeing to be his physician. As I said, he had been out of his, you know, living at home quietly after being released from prison about four years before this. And I said to Junior, you know, I'll be happy to see your dad. Just, you know, just call my office and set up an appointment, which he did. But before that appointment could take place, Raymond Sr. was admitted to another hospital with a gangrenous toe, which required amputation. And that's a very uh, common complication of late stage vascular disease. Okay. And I said to his son, no problem. When your dad is discharged, just call the appointment and we'll uh, call the office and we'll reschedule his appointment. But shortly after he was discharged from that hospitalization, he was arrested at dinner time at his home and taken to the Situate State Police Barracks. Now, I happened to be in Jack Cicilline's office that night meeting with Jack and his brother because they were representing me. The father of my youngest child who had warned me that he would make my life miserable if I ever broke up with him, was suing me for common law divorce, palimony, child support, and custody of our daughter on the grounds that I was an unfit mother. Wow. 
So I happened to be there, and a friend of Junior's burst into the office, white-faced, saying they just arrested Senior and took him to the state police barracks. And he had taken his insulin, but he was too upset to finish his dinner, and he forgot his nitroglycerin. And Junior and Rita, uh, Raymond Senior's wife, really want him checked by one of his doctors. And I said, well, let me try to reach one of his doctors, because I knew who his other doctors were. And I couldn't reach anybody, and they kept, he kept insisting, you know, please, somebody, some doctor has to go check him. So I said, you know, all right, I'll go check him. Because in my mind, I had already agreed to be his physician. And here he was in what was bound to be a very stressful situation. So I was driven to the Situate State Police Barracks, and I thought, you know, I'd get there and everybody would be standing around with long faces and speaking in hushed tones. But instead, it was like, a tailgate party at a rowdy college homecoming. And everybody was talking and laughing, and Jack was in great good humor, and he was introducing me to all these law enforcement people as this is Barbara, Dr. Barbara Roberts. She's Raymond's cardiologist. And Raymond himself was nowhere to be seen, um, but Jack told me he was in a private office with um, Major Lionel Benjamin. So Jack went in and told Raymond Sr. that Rita and Junior had wanted him checked by a doctor, and I would be coming in to check him. So, you know, this is about like eight years after the Godfather movies came out. So, <laughs> you know, what what are you expecting? You know, you're expecting someone who looks like, yeah, like uh, Marlon Brando. But the first thing I thought of when I laid eyes on him was, oh my God, he's so tiny. Because he was, <laughs> he was a tiny, shriveled old man. And the second thing I thought was, holy. This man looks like he's about to have a cardiac arrest any second, and I'll never be able to resuscitate him here. Because he was cyanotic. He was sweaty. His breathing was very labored. And when I asked him if he was having chest discomfort, he said yes. And I said, how long has it been going on? And he said, about two hours now. And he let me examine him, and when I examined him, I became even more alarmed because his pulse was extremely erratic, and an erratic pulse in someone who's had a prolonged attack of angina can be a harbinger of sudden cardiac death. So I told Major Benjamin, this man has to be admitted to the hospital right away. He said, oh, no, no, he's been arrested on a capital charge. It was accessory and conspiracy to murder based on an informant's testimony. And I kept insisting, and finally he said, well, you'll have to speak to Colonel Walter Stone. Now, Colonel Walter Stone was the long-term head of the Rhode Island State Police, and I called him, and he said, no, no, you know, this man has been arrested, and blah, blah, blah. So finally, I kept insisting, I said, this man is likely to have a cardiac arrest here in the barracks, and I will not be able to resuscitate him. So he said, well, speak to the Rhode Island police surgeon. A state police surgeon. So I called this gentleman and I explained my history and physical findings. And he said, oh, you're absolutely right. This man has to be admitted to the hospital right away. So Colonel Stone finally had to agree to my uh, admitting him to the hospital for what turned out to be a six-week hospitalization. Wow. And it became apparent to me that Raymond Sr. had been really trying to hide the extent of his disability, the extent of his disease, because the least little stress, whether it be, you know, walking across a room or contemplating going to trial or having to be disposed, he would have a severe anginal attack. And how do I know he wasn't faking it? Well, it's very easy. When someone's heart is starved for oxygen and they're hooked up to an EKG, 
you can see characteristic changes in the EKG that occur when the heart is starved for oxygen. And every time that Raymond had an angina attack and was hooked up to either a monitor or an EKG machine, his EKG became alarmingly abnormal. So that's wow. how it began. And it wasn't long before I was identified in the Providence Journal, the main newspaper in the state, as Raymond's new cardiologist. And that, that's when something kind of amusing happened because I got a call from a young Italian-American man that I had dated briefly after moving to Rhode Island. And even after we no longer dated, we remained friends. And he called me and he said, Doc, they all called me Doc, um, I got a funny story for you. I said, yeah, what is it? He said, remember my friend so-and-so? And I said, yeah, I remember him. He said, he called me yesterday and said, hey, Vinny, remember that Dr. Broad you used to date? She's the old man's doctor now. <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious because to me, a broad was a woman who had, you know, large bosoms and a very small frontal lobe of her brain. And I was just the opposite. That was not you. That's that was awesome. not me. I was the opposite. At least I'm sure that <laughs> the doctor I didn't, right, I didn't have large bosoms. <laughs> so anyway, um, and then, so, you know, over the next three and a half years, I was called upon to testify in multiple courts in both Rhode Island and Massachusetts in state courts and federal courts about the state of Raymond's health. And it was my testimony that he was too sick to stand trial that kept him from having to go to trial and almost certainly to prison during the last three and a half years of his life. And this did not endear me to the prosecutors and the state police and the FBI and the local police, as you can imagine. But the story became even more complicated because about nine months after becoming Raymond's doctor, I met and became romantically involved with the alleged number three man in the New England Mafia. <laughs> and this You're had to be- You're a feisty lady. I like that about you. Well, you know, one of the disadvantages of being the doctor to the head of the mob is that it made it really hard to get a date. <laughs> I'll bet if it wasn't somebody in the right, mob. Exactly. Yeah. And Lewis, that's his name, Lewis was obviously not intimidated by the fact that I was taking care of Raymond. And in his eyes, in the eyes of a lot of people, I was a heroine, and, but we had to keep our affair very secret because the, my testimony would be severely impacted. The, the ability of my testimony to be believed would be severely impacted, if not destroyed. Absolutely. If it became known that I was also romantically involved with an alleged organized crime figure. So, you know, my life was extreme, extremely complicated. My children suffered as a result of all the publicity. Um, my oldest daughter actually had a nervous breakdown. Oh. I went through a prolonged custody trial, which at that time was one of the longest in the history of family court in Rhode Island, which I eventually won, obviously. And, uh, but it was, it was a, a time in my life that was extremely traumatic on many fronts but one which I survived. And I would make the same decisions I made then if I had to do it over again. Wow. It all gets back to that, what I said about, I think the three most important things you can have is courage, honesty, and perseverance. Yeah, I totally agree. Wow, what a, f a fascinating story. Now you've written a book about this and your life in general, which is aptly named The Doctor Broad. Yes. Um, 
And I will admit I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I cannot wait to read it. it it's got incredible reviews. I There are a couple questions that I have. First of sure. all, one of the things that I read was that you're known as the person who brought down the New England Mafia, except I just heard this story about how you were really supporting and and I don't mean to say that you were aiding and abetting the mob. I'm not yeah. saying that. But how did your role in all of this play into bringing down right. the Well, mafia? I actually explain why I say that in the preface to the book. And the book is called, as you said, The Dr. Broad, subtitled A Mafia Love Story. I explain that statement in the first postscript of the book. And... The explanation is that someone who shall remain nameless, but who has impeccable credentials for commenting on the mob, sat me down <laughs> once and said, <laughs> sat me down once and said, you know, Barbara, because of you, the mob in New England is dead. It's kaput. He said, you kept the old man, that's what they used to call Raymond, alive for about a year too long. And during that year, he was able to persuade the heads of the five New York families to let his son take over when he was gone. And his son wasn't up to the job. So that's the explanation, but it's explained more fully in the book. That is fascinating. I can't, we're going to have to read the book and figure all of that out. Yes. For ourselves. One of the things that I would love to know is at what point in this journey did you think, I got to write a book about this? Well, you know, I started taking care of Raymond on December 4th, 1980. And about four months later, the Providence Journal did a big cover article about me in the Sunday Magazine Supplement. And it was it, the title was, Who is the Real Dr. Roberts? And they interviewed a ton of people for this article, which I did not want to be written, but I had no choice in the matter. Right, they, right. They, they interviewed my ex-husband. They interviewed the, the father of my youngest child, who at that time was suing me for custody. They just, you know, they interviewed law enforcement personnel. So I finally agreed to tell my side of the story. And that Sunday, because it came out on a Sunday, I was making hospital rounds. And as I approached the nurse's station on the fourth floor, I overheard two nurses talking. And one said to the other, did you read the article about Dr. Roberts in the paper today? And a friend said, nah, I'm going to wait for the movie. Nice. And... I thought to myself, you know, maybe people think this is an interesting story. Maybe someday I'll write about it. And then in the year 2000, I took a sabbatical from practice. And I decided at that time to get serious and start working on the book. And it was always going to be entitled The Dr. Broad. Right. That was, that was an easy one. Yes, that was easy. <laughs> um, so I sat down and I basically wrote five days a week um, for six months. And the first draft was over 600 pages. And I knew I was going back to work. In fact, I had been asked by the president of my hospital to set up and run a women's cardiac center. And I knew, Congratulations. I, didn't want, thank you, I, knew I didn't want to have the book published while I was still seeing patients. I didn't want to be sitting across my desk, particularly from a new patient, and having them be so distracted by knowing these lurid details of my past that right. they were unable to give me the kind of history I needed in order to take care of their heart disease. But I also knew that once I retired from clinical practice, I would try to have the book published. And by the time I did retire in 2016, I had actually had three other books published. 
but they were all medical books. They were directed at a lay audience, but they were, you know, right, not right. as interesting as a memoir. In fact, my, <laughs> my last book before uh, the Dr. Broad was called The Truth About Statins, and it was an expose of how statins are really dangerous drugs and do far more harm than benefit. Oh, wow. Fascinating. So I, yeah, I knew how difficult it was to get a book uh, published. But one of the things that happened shortly after I retired was that I was having lunch with a friend one day, and she had a copy of the paper in her car, and it said, Crime Town Comes to Providence. And Crime Town was a podcast that uh, examined the intersection of politics and the mafia in Rhode Island. And her ex-husband was Providence's infamous mayor, Buddy Sancy who had served almost 30 years as a mayor, the mayor of Providence, but had also done time in federal prison for racketeering. She said, you know, they keep wanting me. This guy, Mark Smerling, who, by the way, is an Emmy Award winner for The Jinx, an HBO documentary. This producer, Mark Smerling, wants to interview me. But, you know, I have grandkids with Buddy. I can't be bad-mouthing their grandfather in public. But I told him he really should, he really should talk to you. So I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, but I said, you know, just give him my contact information. So he came to my house along with a guy with like very expensive audio equipment, and I still hadn't decided whether I was going to participate or not, but he said, do me a favor, just listen to the first episode. You know, it's a draft, it's it's going to be edited, uh, and it hasn't even dropped yet, so no one else has listened to it, but I want you to hear it. And it opened with some grand jury testimony that was absolutely riveting. And when it was over, I said, okay, I'll do it. I said, Mark, what do you think you know about me? And he said, well, I know you were Raymond Patriarca's cardiologist. I said, yes. And while I was Raymond's cardiologist, I was Louis Monocchio's mistress. And his eyes almost bugged out of his head. Wow. And his jaw dropped because, because he knew who all the players were. And over the next few months, They interviewed me for a total of about seven hours, and then it was edited down to a 35-minute episode. It's episode 11 in season one of Crime Town. And ironically enough, when my episode dropped, I was in Sicily (laughs) on vacation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How's that for irony? And since then, the Crime Town podcast has been downloaded over 50 million times, 5-0 million times. And it may, and actually, it made it easy for me to get an agent. And getting an agent to represent you is the hardest part of getting sure. a book published. Yeah, sure. Because the agent was a huge Crime Town fan, and he came looking for me when he heard I was right, working on a memoir. That is that is cool. That's serendipitous for yes. sure. Yes. Um, so, what is your life like now? You're you don't you're not practicing medicine, right? right? Until this summer, though, I was still teaching part-time at Brown. I've been on the clinical faculty at Brown for, well, since 1977. Okay. But this year with the book launch, I was just too busy to teach. Yeah. Uh, But I I still write, I write a lot of articles on health issues, on feminism issues, on politics. My husband and I like to travel a lot, so we do a lot of traveling. We have. I, um, I we, have to ask: Is your is your husband the the mob guy? No, no, no. no, <laughs> no. My husband is actually a well known Rhode Island sculptor. Okay, all yeah. right. Yeah. Big change. That's a big Very change. Very big change. Yeah. Although he grew up in Federal Hill, which is the Italian section of town, 
And ironically, ironic. his mother, his late mother, when she was a young woman, had a crush on Lewis. <laughs> well, there you go. How yeah. about that? That's yeah. so funny. It's a small little it's a very mafiosa small. world, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Rhode Island is like the little medieval city-state. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. I'm curious, as you were treating senior and you were going through all of this in your life and then into writing your book, what was the biggest struggle for you? Um, the biggest struggle was just doing everything I needed to do. I was in solo practice. I was a single mother of three little children. I had this, you know, all these court appearances hanging over my head. I had the custody dispute. I had the harassment from the father of my youngest child. I was um, assaulted in a cemetery, and the Providence Journal wrote oh about goodness. it because they, so they read a, 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 a police report and they gave my name and home address. You know, as I said, my, da- my oldest daughter had a nervous breakdown. It was just a very, very traumatic four years in my life. Uh, is, yeah, I can't believe it was only four years. Yeah. Just in the telling of it, it sounds like it was an entire lifetime. <laughs> right. And so it was just a lot to go through and a lot to process. And in fact, when I finished the first draft of the memoir, I burst into tears. And I'll bet. I don't cry easily, but it was such a cathartic experience I'll to bet. just get it all down on paper. And it, I just felt like a tremendous burden was lifted off my shoulders. I hear that from writers a lot. Uh, just being able to to get it out is healing. It's a healing process. Has yes. there been anything other than that? I mean, this that might have been the answer to this question throughout the entire process that was just a really beautiful surprise gift or blessing? Well, it made me aware of how strong I was. Yeah, I it love that. It made me realize that if I could survive this, I could survive just about anything. Absolutely. That's a really wonderful takeaway and gift for everybody who's listening is think about, first of all, you've all survived the hardest thing you've ever lived through because we're still listening, which is pretty amazing. And how strong you are. Um, that's a really beautiful gift surviving all of that it sounds like you've retained you retained custody of your youngest child so you survived all of that and everything has gone well how do you celebrate throughout the course of your life and the different areas that you've participated in how do you celebrate success uh whether big or small personal or professional well and the I, book love too. Spending, I love spending time with family and friends. We're very fortunate in that we have a, a circle of good friends who have always been there for me. Um, my family has been supportive. Um, my husband is very supportive. And so we like to get together over good food, good wine. Yeah. We love to sure. travel. We, my husband and I both exercise a lot. I work out every other day for an hour and a half. He wow. works out with a trainer several times a week. We're very interested in eating the proper diet so that we stay healthy. And Good for you. And we, you know, practice relaxation techniques, meditation, body scanning. There are so many healthy ways to handle the stress that is an, an inevitable part of everyone's life. But if you handle stress the appropriate way, which is to eat properly and exercise regularly, 
and you know, not smoke, not do drugs, then you're going to be a lot healthier and happier. Yeah. I love, I always love to hear medical professionals talk about things like meditation and, you know, different ways to manage your health and your stress mm -hmm. other than medication. So I'm, I'm always really appreciative and grateful right. when you share those tips. I'm pretty but, much anti-medication. <laughs> all right. I, I think it should be a last resort. That's awesome. So if somebody, this is totally off topic, but if somebody wanted to change something that wasn't medicine wise and wasn't diet, what is the number one thing you would recommend for um, be, living as healthy a life as possible? It's really a toss up between regular exercise and learning uh, relaxation techniques. Yeah. And what's your favorite? Sort of going hand in hand. Well, I'm much better at exercise than I am at meditating. I'm horrible <laughs> at meditating, although I try to do it every day. <laughs> Are there other ways to relax, though, outside of meditation? Well, I find exercise very relaxing. Do you? Um, yoga. I've never really gotten into yoga because when I when I exercise, I like to be moving more. You know, I do both aerobic exercise and I do weightlifting. I'm impressed. I don't do any exercise, which is, I turned 44 or 45. Ugh, I'm trying to get rid of a year. I turned 45 recently. And um, it's never too late, Heather. I, know, I didn't I know, start I exercising until I was 38. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, it's something that I feel is, is going to be important for me to shift, but I got to do a lot of mindset work and limiting voice work before I, I could get myself there. But it's, yeah. I believe it's important. I want to live. My daughters, just yesterday we were talking and about the possibility of them all living to be in their in their hundreds, like my youngest mm -hmm. being 100 and the oldest being 108. And I said, oh, promise me if you do, you'll just have a big 100th birthday party. And yeah. then we start talking about how old I would be. I, obviously, I, I won't be here to see that. But how old could I live to be and how much I want to be here mm -hmm. to see all their things? And so I do want to take care of myself in a way that will allow that to happen. Yeah. When I started working out, I, I hated it for about the first nine months. And now I always say, if I didn't work out, I would either be in a mental hospital or a prison and probably a prison. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll take that as a good sign because I do hate it. And yeah. I don't use that word lightly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if we can push through for nine months, you can be like uh, Dr. Roberts. I appreciate that. Dr. Roberts, I am excited. Tell everybody where they can get a copy of your book. Well, um, you know, it's it's available at least locally in Barnes & Noble, but you can get it on Amazon. It's available as a Kindle book, as a paperback, and as a hardcover. And if you go to the book's website, which is thedrbroad.com, you'll find on the press page a list of my upcoming engagements. I'm making myself available to speak at book clubs. I think I've spoken oh, at 90% of the libraries in Rhode Island and a few out of state. I did four events on the West Coast. And one of the one of the most exciting invitations I got was to give a book talk and a book signing at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas next year. I love it. Yes. We got to get you to Chicago. We've got a nice mob presence yeah. here, or at least a mob history here. Right. Well, actually, I mentioned Tony Accardo in the book. Okay. Uh, who, was, who, who was the head of the Chicago mob. Oh, that would be fun. I would love a chance to see you speak and talk about it. Um, I think that would be fantastic. So uh, as we close the show out, I get to ask um, a very unrelated question, but one that I'm super passionate about, which is what's your favorite charitable organization to support? My favorite charitable organization is something called Women for Women International. And they're very highly rated, you know, a, a huge percentage of what they collect goes to help women 
who live in areas that have been impacted by war. Mm. And so yeah. I became very interested in the plight of uh, Afghan women. Um, Absolutely. So that's, I started, you know, uh, every month I donate to Women for Women and International. I love that. Um, listeners, as always, get to know the organization. There are a lot of ways to support them, whether that's financial or time. Sharing their information with others will make them the charity of the week. So we thank you very much for teaching us about them. I have one more quick question before we go. Um, sure. It's probably not a quick answer, but we'll see if we can do it. You have then led a very different life from the way you grew up. Yes. How has your relationship with your family been throughout this process? As I said, my family has been very supportive of me uh, in, in so many ways. I, I can't imagine being from a small family because, you know, as I said, I have nine siblings. I have 18 nieces and nephews and grandnieces and nephews. I have three children, one grandchild, you know, endless cousins. And I find it very comforting, um, you know, you're not as close to everyone in your family. You know, you're closer to some than others. But I think if you if you don't have a lot of blood relatives, it's important that you develop a network of friends. We did not evolve as a solitary race. We did, we evolved as social beings, and we need other people in our lives. Yeah. We sure do. We need them. I love that. Um, and everybody needs people, even even mobsters. Yes. Everybody needs people. So I, I love that and I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. Um, folks, this was a really fun conversation. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback on this episode or anything um, that you want to share, how you're out choosing bravely. You can give us a call at 312 Six four six zero two zero five. But remember that you can go out into the world and make a difference in everyone's lives, and that difference then makes a difference. It's like a domino effect. If you love what we're doing here on the Brave Files, please consider joining us on Patreon. I cannot run this little podcast that could without the wonderful support of our Patreon sponsors. You can visit us at patreon.com slash bravefiles to find a level that works for you. Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. It was my pleasure, Heather. Thank you for inviting me. It was really fun. It was a fun conversation. I can't wait to grab a copy of your book, The Dr. Broad. Folks, go out and get your own copy. This is Heather Vickery reminding you today and always to go out and choose bravely. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks. Check it out for yourself and get your 30-day free trial, including one free audiobook. Simply visit audibletrial.com slash the brave files and voila free audiobooks what could be better than that you've been listening to the brave files stories from people living courageously to learn more about the show find our show notes or get some great bonus content visit the brave files podcast.com and we'd love to know what you think you can give us a call at 312-646-0205. Let us know your thoughts on the episode, the show in general, or maybe share with us how you're out choosing bravely. This episode is brought to you by Vickery & Co. Success Coaching, coaching that helps you maintain a life well-lived and a business well-run. 
Learn more at vickeryandco.com. Our music is produced by Matt Lewis. Follow him on Instagram at mattmmusic or visit his website, theunionband.com. We couldn't do any of this without our extraordinary audio engineer, Andrew Olson. Learn more about him and check out his work at findandrewolson.com. And special thanks to our associate producer, Kim Statler. I'm your host and executive producer, Heather Vickery. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week.